Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Beaumont. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to Pump It Up, written and recorded by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Elvis Costello. The 14-time Grammy nominee, Songwriters Hall of Famer, Rock and Roll Hall of Famer, ASCAP Founders Award winner, and one of Rolling Stone Magazine's 100 Greatest Songwriters of All Time, will join us in a moment to talk about his multifaceted songwriting career and the creation of his new album, Hey Clockface. Part 1. Well, today's episode, like so many before, is brought to you by the fine folks at Pearl Snap Studios, located just outside of sunny Nashville, Tennessee. But, you know, you don't have to live near Nashville, Tennessee to get your songs, you know, turned into a beautiful, crystal clear, pitchable product by Justin and the good people at Pearl Snap. Yeah, Justin and his team can take your song in whatever shape it's in, even a rough uh, demo that maybe you've done on your phone, and he can take it and make it sound like a pitchable quality professional demo. We're always talking about Justin and Pearl Snap on the show because we believe in the high caliber of work that they do. So check them out at pearlsnapstudios.com. Well, today's episode is a big one. Uh, we've been talking about this one for a long time, and I actually think the name Elvis Costello it was one that was on kind of our short list of, of artists that, that we would love to talk to way back from the beginning. Yeah, I mean, I really can't think of any other artist uh, or songwriter that I respect more than Elvis Costello. And I think just for the breadth of his work, that he is a person who follows his heart and his passion, and he explores music without boundaries. You know, if if he wants to do a jazz album, he does a jazz album. If he wants to do an album that's country bluegrass flavored, then he goes and does that. I mean, he has a love for music and a passion for music that's just infectious. And I remember years ago, probably 15 or or 20 years ago, there was an issue of Vanity Fair that came out um, that had an article in it that was like the 500 greatest albums of all time. And Elvis Costello was the guy who put that list together, who created that list. And I remember just pouring over that and feeling uh, partially really satisfied that a lot of albums that I loved were, uh, were on his list. But it also turned me on to some music that I wasn't aware of just because I have so much respect for who he is musically and, and for his opinion. And so, you know, to, to have the opportunity to talk to Elvis, um, definitely a, a bucket list kind of moment. And, you know, we've, we've been doing this for a while, and I think we're pretty confident in, in the way we put our episodes together. But when when we've got somebody like like Elvis, who's not only, you know, done so much in his own career, but but is kind of a, a curator or, or a, a, a student of great music, um, uh, sometimes I get this nervous feeling like, oh Lord, we're going to get found out. <laughs> do, do you struggle with that at all? Or is it just me? Um, you know, I, I feel like I know, uh, enough about music that I'm not a total fraud. Um, but I do sort of have that. Wait, are like, you saying that like in sort of in contrast to me? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that you're a fraud, but not just about music. I mean, I think just across the board. So I'm not singling out, okay, you, you know, specifically. As long as you're being even-handed. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, with a, guy, with a guy like Elvis, you're sort of worried he's going to like reference, you know, like a, a George Jones album cut from like 1964 that wasn't even a single and then be shocked that like you didn't know it, right, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, no, I, I, I hear what you're saying. There's definitely that sort of like low-grade anxiety that, yeah. that is going to be uh, in, in existence during an entire conversation like this. Um, and, you know, I mean, first of all, his name's not really Elvis Costello. It's Declan McManus. That, that was his, his given name. And uh, I have to give a shout out to, to another person um, who has been a very good friend of mine since uh, first grade, uh, also a very good friend of yours, Paul, since middle seventh school, grade, yeah. since seventh grade. Um, I'm not saying that it makes me and this person, you know, six years worth of closer, but it kind of does. Yeah, it's, um, that's twice in this conversation. Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, but I want to give a shout out to David Manning who is a friend of ours from Nashville, a guy that we both grew up with, good friend of ours, huge Elvis Costello fan. He was kind of an unofficial songcraft consultant uh, on this episode. <laughs> he he helped us as we were putting the questions together and, and thinking about what we wanted to talk about with Elvis. So he was a great guide, a spirit animal, if you will. Um, but, uh, but I was thinking, you know, He's known as David Manning now. He used to be known by Skip when we were kids. Yeah. Like everyone called him Skip. And then he went to college and he reinvented himself as David. And Paul, I don't know if you remember this, but at his wedding, uh, his mother asked if I would say a, a blessing at the rehearsal dinner. And so there's this big banquet hall and there's probably 50 people in there. And so I start into a prayer and I said, I said, God, uh, we thank you for this, you know, opportunity to to gather and celebrate our friend David or Skip as you know him, and <laughs> you let out like a big laugh, and right. no one else did. It was uh, uh, it that's was our friendship in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> it's kind of this podcast in a nutshell. <laughs> um, and so I often think back on that as a moment that was kind of embarrassing, but also kind of validating because, you know, at least you left. Um, but uh, I was just thinking about, you know, David and, and reinvention and, you know, Elvis and Declan. And I don't know how it's all related. I think I'm just excited that that we got the chance to uh, to speak with Elvis. And I'm glad that our, our buddy David got to uh, vicariously be a part of it, too, because um, he loves Elvis as much as we do. Well, this is an amazing moment for us as a podcast. Imperfect, though the episode may be, because I, I may have to point out that there is there's a bit of noise on Elvis's side of the of the call. Uh, I think he he had someone doing some tree trimming, maybe uh, around his place. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I got to say this: this is kind of what makes Elvis Costello cool. <laughs> he was sitting on the back porch of his house in Vancouver Island in Canada, and you know. He, he set up a mic so that he could talk to us. Somebody next door, uh, he said it sounded like they were trimming the hedge. I think they might have just burned through like four chainsaws uh, cutting down a forest because that's what it sounded like. <laughs> but also like birds are singing and there's like planes going overhead. And it made me like Elvis Costello even more that he's like, yeah, you know what? There's sounds. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's well, what it is. How cool is this guy? Yeah, I mean, he's he's talking to you and me. 
You know what I mean? It's, it's not like he's gonna, stop everything. I'm talking to Songcraft. So yeah, fair enough, man. Yeah, yeah. So um, definitely a thrill for us, and uh, and hope you guys enjoy this conversation. Well, let's hope a lot of people hear this episode, and it doesn't just sink into the silent fog, like your joke at Skip's wedding. Part two. Released between 1977 and 1979, Elvis Costello's first three albums, My Aim is True, This Year's Model, and Armed Forces, were all included in Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. That early period of his recording career yielded now-classic singles such as Allison, Watching the Detectives, Pump It Up, Radio Radio, Oliver's Army, Accidents Will Happen, and others. Though he established his career as a rock artist and reached commercial heights in the U.S. with the pop hit Every Day I Write the Book, Costello's more than 30 studio albums cover a breathtaking range of stylistic ground, from Almost Blue, his early 1980s album of country covers, to The Juliet Letters, his 1993 collaboration with the Brodsky Quartet. From North, an album of ballads partially inspired by his wife Diana Krall that topped Billboard's jazz chart in 2003, to Il Sogno, his first full-length orchestral work which was performed by the London Symphony Orchestra and topped Billboard's classical chart in 2004, to Wise Up Ghost, a 2013 collaboration with Questlove and The Roots. In between, he's continued to release albums both solo and with his bands The Attractions, The Imposters, and The Sugarcanes. Always an adventurous collaborator, Costello entered into a fruitful songwriting partnership with Paul McCartney that yielded more than a dozen songs, including Costello's top ten single, Veronica, and McCartney's My Brave Face. He went on to release entire collaborative albums with Richard Harvey, Burt Bacharach, Alan Toussaint, and others. He has written lyrics for compositions by Charles Mingus, Billy Strayhorn, and Oscar Peterson, as well as musical settings for lyrics by Johnny Cash and Bob Dylan. His songs have been covered by a range of artists, including George Jones, Chet Baker, Dusty Springfield, and Solomon Burke. Costello has been nominated for 14 Grammy Awards, two of which he won, as well as an Academy Award for co-writing The Scarlet Tide with T-Bone Burnett for the film Cold Mountain. He has received two Ivor Novella Awards for songwriting, the Americana Music Association's Lifetime Achievement in Songwriting Award, and the ASCAP Founders Award, which was presented by Burt Bacharach. He was inducted into both the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and was named one of the 100 greatest songwriters of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. His genre-stretching new album, Hey Clock Face, was recorded in Helsinki and Paris and was released on October 30th. Elvis, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, man, how are you? Doing well, thanks. Are you getting much of that that machine that's in the background here? Because I'm on my back porch here, so somebody has decided to start trimming the hedge next door or something. Oh, like, man, great timing. I've got this very noisy machine in the background. That's okay. We will just roll with it. We're not too formal on this show anyway. So. Uh, so <laughs> Well, you are incredibly prolific, so this interview is going to be a little bit different than many of our other episodes. We're only going to be able to scratch the surface here, but we want to touch on some of the larger themes of your overall career as a songwriter in light of your new album, Hey Clock Face. Um, tell us a bit about the creation of that new record, particularly in regard to COVID-19. Did the, the onset of the pandemic um, affect your writing process in any way? 
uh, with regard to this record, not at all, um, because all of these songs were written before any of this, you know, started to happen. In fact, the the majority of the songs were recorded even before things changed. I mean, by the very fact that I got on a plane and flew to Helsinki should tell you that, you know, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't confined by any of the uh, uh, current lockdowns and, and protocols that we, we enjoy now. Right. Um, it sounds a little crazy to say I'll just go to Helsinki to make a record, but I was about to begin a, a UK tour, so it was a small detour. I, I spent three days in a wonderful studio on an island just outside of Helsinki making a noise that I liked. <laughs> and uh, trying to find a way to play rock and roll that didn't have a rule book about it. Just, you know, as ever, you pick, you get a rhythm, rhythmic flow to the lyrics and you've tried to find something that can get you to the end of the story. Then sure. I went from there to Paris and found myself in a studio with Steve Naive and a group of musicians he had gathered, French uh, musicians who probably, I think they travel easily across the borders between jazz and classical and pop. You know, they didn't really, as as is the case, I think, as you're well aware, sometimes people are really conscious of those borders. Mm-hmm. And uh, to travel between them is to suggest that it's some affectation or a desire for crossover and all these old-fashioned concepts. But I, I found really happily that those guys lent themselves to whatever they found in the songs, whether it was a joyful song like Hey Clockface or a very concentrated ballad like I Do or something you know, heartfelt like the whirlwind. How could you know My common senses had deserted me Uncertain nights When other gentle-handed from there and truthfully laid the songs aside hmm. uh, I didn't really listen to the recordings very much because I had to think about you know the coming tour uh, and we you know we were traveling from night to night up and down uh, the country we were we opened in Liverpool in a dance hall where my mother used to dance as a young woman and we were you know we were going along great we were playing these old uh, theaters that some of which we hadn't played in 40 years of traveling um, and then you started to see, you know, holes appearing in fully sold out houses. And you knew that people were, were starting to become anxious about going out into the night mm. yeah. uh, because of what they were reading in the paper. And the next thing I heard was the border to Canada was going to be closed to people carrying my passport. And I had to go home to my family and cut the tour short by three dates. Mm. Suddenly, I'm sitting outside, a, you know, a cabin on Vancouver Island, wondering where the world went, you know. Wow. But <laughs> right. I, I must say, in that time, I had time to then listen and heard what what I held in my hand already, and I went about looking for how I could complete, complete it as a record, you know. Yeah. Wow. 
you know, you wrote in your memoir that, that once you had notebooks that you would fill with, with titles and ideas. And I'm curious if that methodology has changed over the years. Like when you were writing the songs for the new album, uh, was there something magical about pen and paper? Or have you moved to, you know, filling your iPhone notes app? with titles and lyrics <laughs> i think I, I i think i i i there is something to every method um i would say that you know the the devices found their way into the making of this record it, in two regards i mean yes it's true that you grab anything to mm-hmm. catch an idea that comes into the mind so you might speak a line that occurs to you i might hum a melody into a recorder on my phone. I used to carry a little dictaphone. You know, they were very poor fidelity. And, and um, you know, you'd sometimes accidentally erase something that you meant to keep. It's much harder to lose things with, with all these devices all linked up. Um, but I do like still like the notebook. I, I think there's something to writing the words out because you see different patterns to the words. Mm. Um so I, 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 I favor all of the methods. I mean, I do remember the almost comical feeling of getting a melody um, in my head long before we had any kind of portable recorders, truly portable recorders like dictaphones and things like that. I didn't carry one early on. And a melody would come in my head and I'd have to get from that place to somewhere where I had an instrument because I knew the only way I was really going to capture that little bit of a song would be to repeat it over and over until it was drummed mm-hmm. into my head, and I and it couldn't be it couldn't turn into uh, chirpy chirpy cheep cheep or you know <laughs> uh, I heard it through the grapevine or any song I happened to hear walking along the road, you know. Right, uh, right. I'm sure if you know anything about that, it's it, it. There are there are two things that you really have to consider when you're capturing melody from thin air. One is the influence of ambient sound, which can include other music. And the second is the resistance to going to the instrument too soon before it is, to some degree, formed in your mind. Um, You you know, because I think sometimes when you go to the instrument, um, it it automatically formalizes the shape of the melody Hmm. in relation to rhythm and even harmony. You know, particularly if you play the guitar, uh, a melody w- will appear to be, you know, really in space and have so much freedom. And the minute you you give it form with accompaniment, it loses some of that flight. Does that make mm. any sense at all? Yes. Um, yeah. I, I think it's why I, I probably the more ambitious tunes uh, are ones that I write at the piano, where the diagram of music is all before me. And I really don't play the piano in any conventional way, so in that I have more freedom. (laughs) Whereas the acoustic guitar immediately puts the rhythmic flow into something, and but it might anchor it in simpler changes, you know, because you go into the pattern of a of a guitar accompaniment very quickly. So those are two compatible thoughts about writing that have occurred to me over years of repetition. Yeah. Well, speaking of your memoir, you write about a conversation you had with Bob Dylan early in your career, and there were a couple of questions that you wanted to ask him. Uh, Mostly, you write, I wanted to know how it was possible to remain invisible enough to observe the very transactions between people that were the substance of so many of my songs. Um, At this point, you're equally as visible as Bob Dylan, so I wonder how you would answer that question today. You'd be surprised I'm a master of disguise. (laughs) <laughs> uh, 
I really don't have any problem. I really don't have any problem at all. I mean, of course, when I uh, was trying to have that conversation with Bob in, in that party in Minneapolis so many years ago, I was most crucially aware of how we were being overheard by a lot of the other people. You know, people were very curious because they saw uh, the two of us speaking and they and people were, you know, it was almost as if it, the room didn't go completely quiet, but it felt to me as if it did, hmm. as if they were trying to overhear. Now, of course, that was ridiculous because one, Bob wasn't going to tell me if he knew the answer to that question because that would be his business. <laughs> and the second was that it, that it, that it, that it sort of imagined... Uh, the way I probably felt at that time that most everything in the songs that I wrote had to be from direct observation or experience. That was a lot of what I drew on in, right. the, in particularly in that period around around that time. And I think both before and after, I already knew that that wasn't the only way you could write songs. Of course, before I ever set foot on a stage in earnest as a professional performing musician or, or somebody who was making records, I wrote songs that tried to imagine worlds that I never would enter right. uh, or never imagined I would enter. And after I had a, a, a sort of brief moment of pop infamy in the late 70s, particularly in England, where it was a moment-to-moment, -moment, uh, you know, your picture in a teenage magazine type of pop stardom, it, it was so fleeting and it was so insubstantial in the long run as to the whole story of what I've been doing these last 40 years that I, I realized I had so much more freedom than I had uh, feared I did, I, you know, was going to be forbidden me in that conversation in Minneapolis in 78, you know, or whatever, hmm. 82 or whatever year it was, you know, I, right. I, I did sort of think if, whatever, if, I, if, I can't, if I can't recede into the middle distance, how will I ever write again? an observational hmm. lyric hmm. Uh, if I'm, if I, you know. And of course, I was standing right there with somebody who, by walking into the room, had everybody's eyes on him. Right. Nobody was looking at me, you know. <laughs> I, I, I've had a few occasions. I mean, I work with Bert Bacharach. If you want to become invisible, stand next to him, you know. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this is like, that, that, it's very easy to become invisible. I, I, <laughs> I you know, pick anybody more handsome than you and they will. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's great. Well, before you were Elvis Costello, before you were visible to anyone really, you were Declan McManus. You were growing up in London with a father who was a jazz trumpeter, a well-known vocalist with a dance band called the Joe Loss Orchestra. And I understand that your dad would routinely bring home the popular records of the day and learn them for radio performances. And, and plenty of kids are, you know, first exposed to music at home, but not many kids are exposed to a parent who's actually analyzing and studying records in, in repetition in order to learn them. I mean, this, this conversation is already really fun for me because of your analytical approach. I mean, I can hear it in the way you talk about songwriting. In what ways did not just hearing music in your household, but hearing music repeated and analyzed and studied, how did that help you understand the components of what makes a song? Um, I think I absorbed a lot of things uh, by a sort of osmosis, you know? I didn't ever study an instrument. Um, I didn't learn to write music down till I was in my 40s, so um, I didn't have any formal training, and my, my parents didn't push me towards that. My father had argued with, my, uh, with his father about uh, departing from the written note to play jazz. My grandfather was a classically trained um, military musician and a ship's 
uh, bandsman after that, after the First World War, so played only with the dots in front of him. Uh, I felt even less uh, bound to written music than my father, who could read music and did uh, obviously Mm. have to. But I didn't ever sense that my dad was really analyzing the songs that... My main memory, it was only a couple of years because my parents separated in in the early 60s. But um, those few years where he was uh, using the front room as a rehearsal space, my memory is just of the physical uh, sensation of him raising his voice to performance level along with a recording that he was playing at a reasonable volume on a a Decadecalian record player. And he had set up an arrangement of elastic bands to repeat the record, to, to, to do like a repeat function. So the na- wow. needle would drop back on the disc and he'd sing it again. And they, each time he got closer to, you know, absorbing the melody, bear in mind, most of these songs are pretty simple. He's reading from sheet music and his voice is now starting to, you know, rattle the pane of glass. And the, there was, we had a, 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 a door to the front room was, was glassed. And it would vibrate. His voice was so powerful. And that's really the sensation, not analysis. And I didn't really pay any attention to the character of those songs. I was just aware of him singing, and I was aware of seeing him on television on occasion and hearing him on the radio up until 1963, when I something about Please Please Me made me ask him, what happens to those records after you finish with them? Because mysteriously, the, he would come with these these acetates and A-label vinyl records, would work with them with a, with a stack of sheet music, and then the records would disappear. They wouldn't... I thought maybe they came... You know, as a kid, I thought maybe they came from a lending library or something. You know, I didn't know where they right. went. Because they weren't on a shelf. We had lots of good records. We had records that my parents listened to for pleasure by, you know, and, and as you mentioned, my father had played uh, bebop uh, when that was kind of an unthinkable thing in Birkenhead where he comes from near Liverpool. <laughs> he must have been one of the very first people in England trying to play this music that Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker were playing. I have right. no idea how good he was in doing that, but but he had a feeling for it. My mother was very, very knowledgeable about music because she had been um, uh, what you would call a store clerk. You know, she had worked in a record shop since she was 14 <laughs> and had necessarily had to memorize the catalog. This is long before computers. You'd have to be able to advise customers the relative merits of two versions of the same piece of music or the same song. She had her own preferences for dance music and for jazz. That's how my parents met. So, you know, the music that I could have heard had nothing to do with what was in the hit parade. The ah, music that right. my parents played, they didn't listen to rock and roll. They, they, they didn't see anything in it. Most English rock and roll was terribly square. And, uh, you know, I remember hearing Little Richard for the first time. That I got excited about. But, hmm. you know, a lot of the English rock and roll singers were pretty, pretty, you know, sort of weak tea compared with the real stuff, you know. And, of course, yeah. we couldn't always get hold of the real stuff unless you were already a teenager and knew where to go and hear it. I was just, you know, nine, ten years old, when the, even when the Beatles arrived, you know. Um, but that yeah. hit me all at once. And it was that one record that made me ask my father if I could have that single when he had finished with it. And, I mean, it was quite a bold thing because I maybe my dad gave these records to 
two friends or something, or to, you know, friends of the family's kids who were a little bit older than me. And I had shown no interest in them up until then. I just listened to the two or three records I had. I had a little record player. And um, that was it. I, that, yeah. was, that was the beginning. You know, that yeah. one song was like, I had this, I have to have this copy. This I need to play over and over until I know every note. <laughs> now, what yeah. I learned isn't analytical. It's um, very emotional. Uh, hmm. And I think not having a brother or a sister of my generation, I grew up alone, only child. I had no concept that my ability to sing both parts on all of these records was in any way a gift. Oh. But yeah. uh, I, yeah. I didn't realize that everybody couldn't do that, you know. Uh, that's, hmm. uh, and I never even thought about playing an instrument. Um, and I suppose it was because my father didn't... I knew he played an instrument, but it wasn't one I was interested in playing or even had any chance to try. Uh, my, we went to Spain in the early 60s and somehow I came home with a guitar uh, which was uh, literally a Spanish guitar as they used to call them you know but uh, it, it was just a souvenir I never played it you know it just yeah. sat in the corner of my room gathering dust for maybe four years you know I, I, I was never even curious to pick it up until you know uh, until I was a teenager wow um, I was having a, a conversation with someone about Questlove the other day, and, and this person said, you know, I think Questlove is actually a musicologist who just happens to also be a great drummer. And that kind of got me thinking, uh, there's a very small handful of highly respected musicians and songwriters who simultaneously also kind of function as preservationists and historians and champions of various musical traditions, but in a way that's not an intellectual exercise, but a reflection of real passion and kind of wonder as a music fan. Um, and you, you know, you're talking about as a kid, it's an emotional reaction. Um, it's not necessarily something intellectual and you're known as much for your deep love and passion for music as you are for the mastery of your craft. And, you know, I think you were probably destined to become a songwriter, but I wonder, you know, if you were not a musician or songwriter, if you might be, a Peter Goralnik or someone like that who who channels his considerable writing talents into writing about music and, and championing music that um, excites you and, and, you know, and wanting to kind of wave that banner and, and share that music with the world in some way, even if you are not a musician or songwriter. Well, you've said a mouthful there. I mean, you're speaking <laughs> of two friends of mine. I mean... Quest, when we worked together, you know, we, we bear in mind, we mostly spoke through music for the record Wise Up Ghost. Stephen Mandel was the intermediary. His engineering and, co and production of that record was the thing in which Quest and I kind of collaborated. And although the record was credited to The Roots, you know, uh, Tariq did not come in until we did the remix record. And the rest of the members sort of joined to play parts on the record. So the dialogue was really between my lyrics and Quest Rhythm, which Stephen helped, you know, sort of construct into Wise Up Ghost album. Will you walk us It was when we came to do interviews together, Quest and I, that we realized how much common ground we had, despite, you know, the many differences as people as people perceived us. 
in that both of us had fathers uh, who had, had been musicians, you know, that, that had led the way. We had watched them perform. We had a- had access to records that was di- were, were different and had begun that sort of, you know, lifelong sense of collecting, not for the sake of rarity, but for the sake of what was the secrets hidden in the music. And Quest has obviously famously has a massive record collection, but it's not just about the rarity. Some of that is celebrating the object. Of course it is, and the artwork and the whole culture of it. But but he's drawing from it as a strength, and that's why he's such a fascinating musician. Peter is also a friend. Peter Goralnik, I've admired him uh, before I ever met him. I, I mean, his books offered a perspective of American music that you couldn't expect to gather from a couple of compilation records or the access to the corners of American music that he has chronicled, not just in his major biographies, because obviously the Elvis, uh, two volumes of Elvis's life are really like, you know, uh, Otello and Leah, you know, it's, uh, it, they're amazing books. But I'm thinking more in terms of, um, you know, uh, feel like going home and lost highway where these essays about the humanity of players as much as their musical achievements were really what drew me to his writing and if i have ever could have written anything um in a song that was uh, as evocative as some of those those portraits that he created of people like charlie rich or and i'm reading currently his new book his new collection um uh, rover many years of of some you know uh, Portraits of Skip James and uh, uh, Mel Haggard and, uh, you know, just right. really wonderful. Some of the people that he wrote about were people I couldn't have known about at all in growing up in England. You know, we just, it would, they would have been names referred to by other musicians that I, that I did know about. Right. Uh, so I don't think myself informed to tell you that story that you speak of. I could tell you a different story, of course, about the very unusual way in which music filtered through light entertainment in England, which is quite different to the way um, uh, the continuity of American pop music happens. Hmm. Um, yeah. Because there was this, you know, time lag um, between a record being issued and being a hit in America and, you know, and the same record being issued in the UK. And in that space, local producers, local artists grabbed hold of those songs, grabbed hold of those. They heard about the hit that had happened. You know, maybe it was only a hit in Cleveland and it wasn't even a hit in New York yet and they still heard about it. People who had their ear to the ground brought those songs to England and local artists did them. But more importantly, they were also performed by people such as my father in radio broadcast renditions. This was due to restrictions on the amount of recorded music played in any any one day right so there, there were limitations there were mandated limitations on recorded music because of agreements between the bbc and the musicians union protected hmm. the jobs of of working musicians right. so we had many many very strange transformations of popular song it was much closer to the model of the way music functioned in the 1920s and 30s than I think uh, existed in America at the same time. Yes, yeah. sure, you had Pat Boone murder, murdering Little Richard songs, but <laughs> you know you, we had even more bizarre renditions. You know, my my I my record collection reflects the songs my father sang on the radio. Okay, so 
you wouldn't be surprised if he sang um, It's Over by Roy Orbison, because that's a big ballad, you know. But you right. might be surprised that he also sang Substitute by The Who or Reach Out and I'll Be There by The Four Tops or See Emily Play by The Pink Floyd. Even as right. late as that, this was still happening, you know. Ha. These wow. strange transformations of popular records arranged for a 16-piece band that was configured on the Glenn Miller model. Now, right. maybe augmented only by an extra guitar player to try and recreate something played by the Pink Floyd. It sounds crazy, but that is the way a lot of music was heard. A lot of songs were heard. So my sense of songcraft is very much influenced by this relationship between exciting pop music including that filtering in from America, the Motown, Tamler, as we called it. You can imagine the impact of the temptations turning up on British television when previously we'd been looking at Herman's Hermits. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's a big difference in terms of style right. and, you know, just execution. Right. Um, and likewise, Burt Bacharach's comp compositions. You know, this is a level of sophistication. I didn't understand technically what it was, but what it did to me emotionally to hear these songs, even though I was too young to have shared any of the experiences described in something like Anyone I Had a Heart or Walk On By, I knew there was something in them that touched something that I didn't even know existed. You know, of course I didn't yeah. at that age, you know? And I'm talking right. about something really, like, visceral, carnal, you know, romantic, sensual, all those words that we use to describe just... You know, the word in the contemporary parts would be sexy, but that, that's yeah. kind of been devalued almost, you know. Hmm. Right. You know, in, in terms of how your music first came out and was, was received by, you know, listeners and critics and everyone, the, the first three singles from your 1977 debut album, My Aim is True, you were Less Than Zero, Allison, and The Angels Want to Wear My Red Shoes. And, and none of those were, you know, huge charting hits at the moment they were released, but now they're classics of your catalog. And in, in the early part of your career, critics paid a lot of attention to your lyrics and wordplay, but they didn't say as much about your melodies. At, at times I read things that critics write, and I think that all they've done is read the lyrics. <laughs> um, and it seems odd to me in the case of these songs, because, you know, when you're talking about a song like Allison, you're talking about some really melodically interesting material you know you've indicated that was you know partially inspired by songs like ghetto child by the spinners and the wind cries mary by Jimi hendrix did it frustrate you at the time that the lyrics were getting all of the love when that's really only part of what you were bringing um no not really no i mean i wanted to be a songwriter i, I didn't think i was a, necessarily a performer I really want, you know, I imagined I, you know, the um, the the ambition I had was to be a songwriter. Um, and then I think I ended up being a singer because nobody else could really sing my songs. They, were, they, <laughs> they turned out to be much more difficult in ways that are not immediately obvious. I mean, they don't require a huge range, a lot of them. Some of the later ones do, but not the early ones. Uh, but they require a lot of uh, rhythmic dexterity to make any sense of them, and they also require a point of view. So, of course, I didn't really object. I mean, I objected a little bit or resisted simplistic definitions. You know, I said a few ill-advised things like, oh, it's all about revenge and guilt, because it sounded good in an interview, you know, and then somebody <laughs> 40 years later will quote that back to me as if I've lived by that, like it was some kind of mantra, you know. Um, yeah, of right. course, I, I think you only have to listen to the songs on the first record to know there's a number of points of view. 
and some things are being said heart, with a heartfelt sense and some are being said with some irony. And uh, I always felt there was a deficit of irony to even to the extent of the pronunciation of the word in the United States. So I wasn't terribly surprised that people didn't grasp what I was saying when I first came to the States because irony didn't seem to even exist, you know. Um, uh, but uh, I, I, I wasn't really... Uh, uh, thinking in terms of being acclaimed as some melodist. I was just singing these songs. They were stories. I, I grabbed whatever clothes would dress them, you know. I'm not gonna get too sentimental like those other stick of valentines Cause I don't know if you are loving somebody I only know it isn't mine How does your approach to melody now compare with who you were as a writer in that early period? To jump forward to the current record that we have, the song which I suppose lends its title to the record, Hey Clockface, has music which is sounds very much like a song from the 1930s and shares harmony with How Can You Face Me, the Fat Swallow song, which with which I preface and close the, the recording. Hey, clock face, keep your fingers on the dial. You stole those precious moments and the kisses from her smile. And now I'm living in these hours away we were wild. I'm not wasting any more time. Hey, clock face, I really want to know. Why is it when we were apart, you always take it slow? But I was writing songs when I was 19 that used those kind of harmonies. I, I just didn't bring those to the fore in 1977 because nobody would have listened to me. I recognized a moment uh, that I had to sort of almost, not exactly deny, but keep behind a curtain some of the music that I that I liked and appreciated because I, I thought I, I need to speak a very clear way here. I need to, you know, focus my attention on this subject matter and the music that I chose to do it was was referring to uh, uh, all sorts of things that I loved, but I didn't. But it certainly wasn't everything that I knew about music, or everything that I loved. Every type of song that I that I had loved to date, I, I wasn't there to give a compendium of things I knew. It wasn't a lecture. It was a record album, you know. Right. And I think right. that um, I was I was lucky in that respect. The timing was right for somebody who wasn't didn't look anything like somebody who should be in a pop group. That, there's probably no other time where, where my appearance would have counted in my favor. And once I was saddled with this absurd uh, stage name, that only heightened that separateness to, you know, more ingratiating performers. So I never really bothered about the fact. I knew there was a good melody to Alison and there was a reasonably melodious tune to The Angels Who Want to Wear My Red Shoes. But the audience had spoken quite convincingly in England that they weren't in the slightest bit interested in any of those songs. Uh Uh, I think Red Shoes made it like high enough in the charts for us to get a first appearance 
on top of the pops, which was then the weekly ritual of a you know chart rundown show. And I think we did that appearance with the attractions on the very first dates of the the, the very first run of shows we ever played. Now I try to be And the record immediately dropped out of the charts once they'd seen us. You know, the minute they caught sight of us, that's when they knew they didn't want the record. <laughs> and, um, you know, so I we went to America for the first time sort of in sort of November 77, thinking this is probably the last go round. If we don't make some sort of impact in America, we might as well forget about going back to England because they've already, we've released three singles. They've all been, they've all tanked you know yeah. the yeah. album had got a reasonable amount of attention because i'd got myself arrested the day it came out uh, or around the time it came out uh, when on the day of my debut in london i got myself arrested in a publicity stunt <laughs> and that made the front page of the melody maker but it wasn't the music that made the uh, made the front page of the melody maker it was the the the, the little well, it was exactly, it worked, didn't it? It was a publicity stunt and we got publicity from it and we got a recording right. contract in America. <laughs> right. So, I mean, um, I never really had time to think about whether anybody was ignoring any aspect of the music. Yeah. Uh, you know, by the time we returned to England, much to our surprise, we'd had a hit record while we'd been away. <laughs> and yeah. even weirder, it was a hit record not played by either the band on my first record or the band on my second record. You know, it was made with a completely other lineup. Just, you know, and it was, it, to my mind, the first record that I had made as opposed to a recording of me performing songs in a room with some great musicians. Hmm. I felt that watching The Detectors was conceived as a piece, as a piece of recorded music. I kind of did know when we went to do it what it could sound like and the things that Nick Lowe did made sure that that was heightened. The tension right. in that track was quite different to the relatively relaxed playing on, on, on My Aim Is True, which was really only um, uh, a contemporary record by virtue of my, of my vocal attitude, really. Well, I want to ask you about a word that appears uh, quite a bit in your memoir, and that word is drafts. Um, you know, I look at a song um, like Radio, Radio, and you, you write about that beginning life as an earlier song called Radio Soul that was kind of a, a Bruce Springsteen-inspired thing, but it, yes. it, it went through drafts, and many of your songs have, and you talk about you know, a song called The Show Must Go On from your early band, Rusty, kind of being revised and becoming Ghost Train. 
Uh, you talk about, um, you know, lip service from this year's model started out as a song called Cheap Reward. And, and there's there's multiple examples, you know, that you write about of, of these drafts. Um, and I'd be curious from a songwriting perspective, given your tendency to revise and rewrite, what are the internal markers for you that tell you that your song is finished? It's reached the point where it needs to be. I think you know it uh, in the moment of performance. I mean, you you might not be satisfied. I mean, a recording of a song, which of course I didn't have any entitlement to when I was writing some of those songs you mentioned. I had no recording contract, so they were just songs I was singing to to the bedroom wall or to a small gathering in a club where I might be able to get a gig. Uh, I had no sense of there being any demand from an audience or any uh, framework for a recording. But the minute I was recording, uh, I, I saw the, that rendition as a, as a starting point for how to play the song properly. Hmm. You know, you found out that was the version that you could get in the hours that you were in the studio and you were happy with that take. And the producer would balance it and mix it to make it sound as vivid and as uh, the best it could be. Yeah. And the minute you played it, particularly with the move from, you know, not having a band when I made my first record, meant that a lot of things were open to interpretation because the attractions were formed in the summer of, 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 of 77. And by the time we, we went to America for the first time, we, we had dropped most of the first half of the first record from the repertoire. We were already playing most of the second record. And, we, and so I maintained that kind of one record ahead feeling. Yeah. So it always felt like a work in progress to me. Now, when it comes to the, some of those earlier songs, I think it was just simply realizing that the, the carriage of music that I had conceived for something like Cheap Reward was not going to be heard in the melee of 1977. But lip, lip service was something we needed. If you ask me today, which is the better song, I'd say Cheap Reward is. Hmm. It's a much better song. Interesting. But, but you know, it's because it it's a little more... Um, has a few more ideas in it. Lip service was just a just a kind of hook line that that we needed something. We needed an up to another up tempo song for the second side of the record. That was all it was, you know, yeah. or for the second half of the show. At that point, because I believe we did that in our first shows. You know, hmm. it was an early song for this year's model. Um, that said, it you know the the uh, the willingness to look at it again. I mean, I I don't really think you. I think. It, when I, because I use that word and you know in in my book it makes it sound very scholarly in a way it isn't hmm. you know um, huh. yes I did have this other song Radio Soul which was a beautiful idea actually it was just really that we were broadcasting from within and there was some sort of music that was made between that and the music we heard um, uh, but of course it was also as I say borrowed from the romanticism of Bruce Springsteen writing about Asbury in this very dreamlike way, which, of course, I didn't know that Asbury would resemble the seaside resorts of my childhood. I, I really did think it was a magical place, you know, because that's the way the songs made it sound. When right. I went there, I went, oh, it looks just like New Brighton, you know, near Liverpool. It just looks like this <laughs> kind of slightly run-down seaside place. And, of course, that's the beauty of the songs, is he had created this sense of romance and myth out of actually quite mundane things. Right. Yeah. And it's something I did understand from childhood because I had seen that exchange between you know, with my father, watching my father perform on the on the radio particularly, 
I'd watch the musicians in their day clothes rehearsing, and it would be very much like an office or a factory. But hmm. then at one o'clock, when the red light went on and they went on the air, they had their band uniforms on, and the guest artists wore the same sort of suits as they wore in magazine photographs. Right. They came dressed even though they were on the radio. <laughs> so right. it was like, then it went from mundane to magical. So I'd seen that my whole life. <laughs> None of that was a surprise to me. So the process of like transformation and makeover, it, it was just very second nature. It wasn't huh. anything particularly analytical. It was just working with the material. Right. Huh. I, I'm not really an intellectual. I'm I'm a working I'm a working musician. I'm a working <laughs> yeah. writer of some kind who happens to play an instrument not very well. <laughs> you know. And but I but I but I but enough to get the tunes out that I know. <laughs> right. You know, Scott and I both grew up in Nashville, so the influence of country music is woven into our DNA. And we've talked a lot about, you know, different genres and the blurring of genres. I, I think you probably surprised a lot of people with Almost Blue. Uh, your album of country covers from 1981 had a top 10 UK single, A Good Year for the Roses, written by the late Jerry Chestnut, who we had on the show a few years back. As you turn, you walk away As the You know, while the Great American Songbook is something that, that you were you know, really digging into in this period, it seems like country music had been there from the start. I mean, your song Radio Sweetheart, which is the B-side of Less Than Zero, it, it had steel guitar on it. Another outtake from My Aim is True, Stranger in the House. I mean, that was just a straight-up country song that George Jones recorded. How did you first get into country music, and, and what part did it play in kind of appealing to your sensibilities and maybe help, helping to shape them as a songwriter? It's the one kind of American music that we didn't have an awful lot of in the depth that I later discovered. I mean, to be truthful, most of the uh, country hits were of the deeply sentimental variety, like Distant Drums or something by Jim Reeves, you know, sort of sophisticated, uh, relatively sophisticated arrangements with strings and background singers, or... Marty Robbins or something melodramatic like that or, 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 or the, you know, the more novel songs by Johnny Cash but we didn't know the deep soulful songs by Johnny Cash they just were not so familiar to people of my age maybe people had more access to music what we did know a lot about um, because of the beat groups was R&B you know we had, we had blues bands but we had the Beatles playing miracle songs. We had Georgie Fame singing songs by Lambert Hendricks and Ross and then Mose Allison. We had lots of singers who, who wanted to be Otis Redding or, or, or Ray Charles. So all of this music was filtered through those beat group bands. Less of them played country music. Hmm. But one of my favorite groups from America was the Birds. So when the Birds <laughs> moved to country music uh, with Sweetheart of the Rodeo, it was a shock. Now the bigger shock was I started to recognize in the other songs that they played, and particularly what the Burritos did when Graham Parsons left the Birds, formed the Burritos with Chris Hillman, uh, was that there were, there were some songs that were on that record. There was a song, Do Right Woman, which was on Aretha Franklin's first Atlantic yeah. record, which I had. Because I'd grown, you know, sort of by that point, I'd become like 
really my hear, my listening was like the Beatles, the Small Faces, and Motown, and then towards the end of the '60s, like Rocksteady, reggae, early reggae records, and uh, and and things like uh, Mustang Sally by you know uh, Wilson Pickett, like with Atlantic Soul. So we heard right. Aretha. I had Aretha's first album, and there is this Dan Penn Spooner Oldham song. Mm. And it's on both records, and I mean, it, and it immediately made that connection. I, I didn't understand anything sociologically about it, you know, but I went, oh, there's a place where this music is meets in the middle, it meets mm. at a point, you know, and that's a place I want to be. And then all the music that I listened to in the back end of the '60s, I never was that struck with psychedelic music. It took me a long time to come to terms with anything like with seven-minute guitar solos or 25-minute guitar solos. <laughs> I like songs. I like songwriters that wrote short, you know, narrative songs. And I very much liked things which drew from an increasingly broad sense of Amer what we would now maybe rather limitingly call Americana. Right. But, um, you know, the, the band being the primary example. Sure. I felt that the band and the birds and Graham, this was all some sort of other version of America that I that I didn't know about. And it led me to understanding who the Leuvens were through Graham and Emmy. Uh, I could hear, you know, I started to make connections with the rocking chair by Robbie Robertson led me to the rocking chair, back to the rocking chair by Hoagie Carmichael. You could hear the, uh, you know, the bones of those songs in some of these songs. Yeah. There were... Um, Clover, who played on my first record, were a band out of Marin County playing with the, this combination of R&B and country, you know, and trying to... They were very, very much a, a, a cult band. Nobody really knew their name. But thankfully, you know, my first manager persuaded them to come and live in England and try and make a record exactly in time to play on my album. Now, John McPhee, who's the guitar player on that record is a great steel player as well. And, and I mean, you know, people hardly notice that there's steel guitar on several tracks on My Aim Is True. Yeah. They, they, they probably don't realize it even is a steel guitar. Like the guitar solo uh, on, uh, I think, I think Waiting For The End Of The World has a, a fuzz tone steel guitar. Huh. Wow. You know, uh, so, it, you know, people just, because the rhythm wasn't a country song, they didn't hear the steel. Right. You know, they right. didn't hear and I was thrilled that John could play like that because I loved the burritos records with the with, uh, you know, with with the fuzz tone steel. I wanted right. some of that kind of action on it. I didn't f think that that was inadmissible even in '77, where there was a lot of uh, very uh, strange rules being made up about what could uh, could be constitute a, a viable record at that time. Right. You know, there was right. Right. there was no middle ground between disco and punk, you know, and and I right. and of course. Coming out, coming, coming from a, a, a sort of a, a West London suburban, uh, you know, uh, listening party with my f teenage friends, listening to uh, Motown and and tighten up. I and I, my own lover, kind of like Lee Dorsey and people like that, that other people didn't even like. <laughs> I, I I couldn't understand that. I couldn't understand like that dance floor music couldn't be the same as the. The heartfelt music, or that, or the music that was saying something of the moment. Because look, mm. what about Baller Confusion? You know, yeah. What's a better protest record than that? You know, mm. Um, mm. I, I didn't think that there was separate worlds. I, yeah. I, I just didn't get it. 
Maybe maybe it was my luck to be exposed to so much music at an early age that I, I just didn't see the other, the, the the boundaries that other people mm. saw, mm. and it was also something to do with the fact that my parents liked a lot of the music that I liked as well. I didn't even see music as generational. Mm. Yeah, you know, my father gave me my first Grateful Dead record. He gave me my first Joni Mitchell record, my first Charles Mingus record. These were records that just passed through his hands in the late '60s, when he ex- personally expanded his listening from the hit parade material he had left the dance band he was free to to listen to and sing whatever he wanted and he suddenly he started hanging out with younger people you know he had a young young uh, girlfriend i think and and it exposed him to music and as a young teenager with not the money to buy it he handed <laughs> those records to me well it opened you know i had particular favorites from from that stack of records yeah that stay have stayed with me ever since you know yeah and, and yeah. I'm, I, there are some things where there's just luck to your discovery of music so h- how country music got into that mix is is purely that lineage that i describe and well uh, again i'm i'm fascinated by this because of my own nashville roots but tell us a bit about going from being a writer who is very much inspired by the country music form to being someone who is perceived as a rock artist but coming from another country setting up shop in nashville to actually immerse yourself in that scene and make a country record of your own i think it i went first in 78 to sing with george jones when uh, somehow i think greg geller who was the head of anr at columbia sent billy Sherrill the, the the recording of stranger in a house that was cut at the miami's true sessions and in a miraculous way, I was selected to be part of George's, my special friends, I think it was, the record. And, and I mean, right. if you look at the guest list of that record and imagine it being 1979, hmm. and it's Linda Ronstadt and, and Dr. Hook, who were a huge group at that time, and, and Loretta Lynn and Tammy Wynette and uh, the Staple Singers and Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings. Uh, I'm very much the outsider, you know, even to the point that, that they have uh, the cover shows a lot of uh, director's chairs with the names of the artists, and mine is lying on its side with an empty beer can next to it. <laughs> Something was being said in that design, you know. That's really true. Look it up. Um, you know, I, I was well aware that it was a very much an outsider, kind of a kind of a almost like a piece of stunt casting, you know. But I went along, and I, of course, they didn't know how much I loved George. George didn't come to the first session. He was unable to come into the state for the legal issue. And uh, so I went all that way only to play a guitar solo on the record, hmm. which Billy Sherrill had me play. And I refused to sing backgrounds with Billy. Uh, he wanted me to record with him singing lead. And right. George would put his part in, and I, and I really didn't want to do that. Hmm. So I said, no, I'll come back. And, and it was a year later that I came back. Yeah, It was nearly a year later I came back and, and did sing with George, and it was wonderful. You know, even though I really was probably not up to singing with him on any day, <laughs> it, was, um, it was still great to do it, yeah. you know, of yeah. course. There's a stranger in the house, nobody sees Everybody says that he's taken my place There's a stranger in the house No one will ever see 
So I had this idea that we should come back to Nashville. We had recorded in 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 Studio B at Columbia, which of course was the room of Stand By Your Man and and Most Beautiful Girl in the World and and probably several of Grand Tour and such songs of George's. But it was a studio of Blonde yeah. on Blonde. You know, we felt we should come back here. We did indeed come back, I think, early in the year. And we cut what I intended to be the blueprint for the record. We cut Hank Cochran's uh, He's Got You, or better known as She's Got You, uh, right. You know that I'd learned from Loretta Lynn. And we cut Bobby Blueland's I'll Take Care of You with the idea of coming and recording an album of blue ballads. So it wasn't even a country record in my original conception. We were going to cut uh, a lot of songs that lay outside a country. Yeah. Which is why we did cut like s several Charlie Rich songs because I thought of him as being somewhere in the middle, you know. He right. he came out our at R&B. Right. Um so uh when we came back we you know by then I had hardened into this uh um I suppose I might have seemed a little bit uh, overzealous about what Billy Sherrill regarded as really worn out old country songs. I mean, he didn't <laughs> want to cut any of the songs that I intended right. to cut. He wanted to get all current songs from the from the Nashville songwriter. You know the way it works. Right. You know, he had a whole, he tipped out a whole garbage bag, literally a garbage bag full of cassettes that he'd brought from home that he had solicited and they spilled out onto the table and we went through them listening to them and they were nearly all of them those you know feeble attempts at a good song where the title is the best thing about it you know um <laughs> you know uh, you know those trick titles you know the, the, there are the good ones like drop kick me jesus through the goalposts of life and then there are the bad attempts to do that sort of title right the there were lots of those there was will there's willie's um I just can't say goodbye, which somebody thought I should cut. Uh, you know, the flesh around your neck is pale, indented by your fingernail. I think that was the sort of song they thought I should sing because right. I was this angry guy, so I'd naturally sing this psychotic song. You know, right. and um, there was like uh, there was a that uh, you know I think they sent over Heartbreak Hotel or something like. People were really confused as to the Elvis thing. Maybe they thought I was an Elvis impersonator. Right. So. And I said, look, I've already got the songs all worked out. Well, he said, what's the first thing you're going to cut? I said, I want to cut Honky Tonk Girl by Loretta Lynn without changing the gender. And he looked at me like I'd lost my mind, you know. <laughs> and I mean, there's some songs now I might think twice about, you know, Why I'm Walking by uh, Stonewall Jackson. I don't know whether that would have been top of my hit parade now, but I, I just found all these songs. I didn't even really, I didn't even really consider the significance of his stage name really back then. I didn't didn't really register i just right. heard the song but I, we did end up cutting a couple of charlie rich songs we cut grams and chris etheridge's hot burrito song that i called i'm your toy yeah we cut sweet dreams don gibson's song you know which i i truthfully had learned from tommy mclean out of hmm. south louisiana not from not from patsy or loretta or, or emmy even I, i'm like the version that i really was in love with which you can hear sort of in the vocal phrasing is Tommy's version. Yeah. And uh, I knew the other versions, but the one that I that I held in my heart was Tommy McLean's version. Hmm. Uh, so we just sang these songs, and I know they were very heartfelt, and I went out of my way to pick songs that I didn't think overworked, like Brown and Blue, 
and success has made a failure of our home and so forth, as well as, you know, a rather ill-advised attempt at double-tracking the entire band on Why Don't You Love Me Like You Used To Do, you know, which... <laughs> right. That it, it became a little bit of a game with Billy. You know, he wasn't completely convinced what we were doing, but he, know, he knew a hit, that guy. He knew a hit. I, I didn't, yeah. can't say I hit it off with him personally, but he did know what to do with a hit. And, right. uh, it, you know... I, I was a little alarmed by being in a studio where the, where the producer was armed all the time. You know, that wasn't <laughs> right. natural to me because we don't grow, we don't have those gu- guns. And he would carry a gun in his back pocket, and that right. you know just he never you know it wasn't like waving it around in a reckless way. But it, right. the fact that he even had one made me anxious because that's just not <laughs> what goes on in England, you know. Right. Uh, right. So you know both he and Snake Reynolds both carried guns, and it was really you know just like oh yeah well we we'll always be outsiders to this world, so let's just enjoy. <laughs> And we, right. I, I spent. I have to say, I spent most of my nights like in some sort of French farce, running up and down the stairs, up to no good, really, at the infamous close quarters hotel. I mean, nothing was right. really very well behaved. So it was a bloody miracle that we're, I, I was ever upright at the, at the microphone, really. I didn't go to bed for about nine days, you know. That's but, amazing. But, uh, it, you know, it was, and that was the first location record that I made. Uh, I'd never recorded outside of London before then, so inevitably it had some, from my point of view, it had some misadventure and mischief yeah. uh, aside from what went on in the vocal booth. You know, it, sure. it was... Uh, it, but, it, it, you know, I, I, I'm glad I did the record. It was, um, it was surprisingly a hit in Europe, particularly, you know, in England and in Holland. Uh, Good Year for the Roses was a, was a, was a big hit. And I, yeah. and I had that very curious thing of having people come up to me and thank me for my introduction to George Jones's songs, which made me feel completely peculiar because that's exactly why I had made this record was because somebody else had sort of opened the, 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 the treasure chest to all these songs and I'd realized the depth of, of these songs that they, far from being sent all sentimental or novelty songs, there were some of the most soulful uh, uh, melodies ever written yeah. and of course it was like anything you fall in love with that new thing and then I tried to write in in the structure of what I'd learned from that and that's what became King of America you know yeah you mentioned Loretta Lynn a couple times in there. I know that you've written with her in in recent years, and you've you've collaborated with a list of of songwriters. You know, Carol King, people, some of the greatest songwriters in the world. But the one of the songs that a lot of uh, folks in America probably associate with you is Veronica, which you wrote with Paul McCartney. You know, you and Paul wrote uh, several songs together, um, but fifteen, uh, fifteen you, songs together. My fifteen, goodness. yeah. And y- you you talk in your book about how how Paul, to a degree, but Burt Bacharach even more so. And I've heard this about him before that those guys, once the melody is established, that's it. We're not changing it for the lyrics. Like the lyrics serve the melody, not the other no. way around. And this is a good spot to uh, to just have you reflect a bit on having written with those guys, having worked extensively with both of those guys, 
what you kind of ultimately took away from that experience as a songwriter in terms of the relationship between lyrics and melody? That's a, it is an interesting question, and we could, I'm sure, talk for a while longer about all of these topics. With with relation to that, I think that, you know, you are talking about people, one of whom is almost exclusively a melodist, but has only written lyrics for one album in his entire career of 60 or well, sixty or more years as a recording artist, to my knowledge, you know. Um Paul is is also really, I know he's written some of the great uh, songs overall, so you would never discount the lyrics, but he's everybody would 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 name him first as a melodist, I think mm. hmm. uh, because of you know so many tunes. Um, I think that there is something to the recognition of the form in a melody uh, that uh, as you say, very acute with Bert, there's no negotiating an extra pickup note into the bar to accommodate uh, a, a, a better articulated lyric yeah. uh, lyrical thought. He just won't, he won't have it. He won't have uh, lines of irregular length and he won't have verses of irregular length. All of which are things that I take advantage of because I am a lyrically driven songwriter. It's not a words and music which is first scenario at all. It's, it's purely that uh, I'm moving in a little bit here because I, you can probably hear there's some sort of adjacent uh, machine. I hope that isn't too hard <laughs> on you. Um, so I would, I would say that, you know, I've never, I've, I've never felt that the melody I was writing was so very important that I couldn't bend it a little bit. Uh, or make it serve the thought. If I wanted two extra lines in a verse, I'd put them there. And maybe that's that ill discipline in a classical sense has cost me some covers, you know, because they make them very hard for other people to <laughs> sing them and remember them. It drives my band crazy. I'll go, you know, this sounds like the same music again, but it really isn't. If you if you if you <laughs> listen, I've changed. Like you know, there's there's an extra line there or something, you know, or a different right. transition. Um, I, I, I'll say all of that having learned the lesson that, that I first discovered from, from uh, Paul really more than anything else and went on with uh, to be really apparent with working with Burt Bacharach that it's, it's, um, it's something like all of the rules that you can make up from, for, for music or for lyric writing uh, I'll give you a perfect example from my current recording I arrived back in Europe from Europe and found myself with time to consider the recordings I had made in in uh, Helsinki and Paris uh, as I told you I had to cut short my tour I had nothing but time I'm sitting in a in a cabin on Vancouver Island with my family very glad that we're all together that we are not in a major city dealing with all of that uh, insanity of sirens you know, going through the night and so forth as would have been the case had we been in New York. Right. Um, I had time to think about what I was doing and my friend Michael Leonard sent me a piece of music that became Radio as Everything. I looked at my notebook and I found these verses which I very much imagine I might have um, edited in, and maybe made more than one song out of if I had been looking 
for you know a four-line verse and a two-line pre-chorus and a four-line chorus and then a middle eight instead right. of which I listened to the music which was more like an open-ended piece of atmosphere and tension and release and which didn't really underline any verse chorus structure and began to read the words and I did only one take because when I listened to it I went that is me that is a recording of me writing a song and I've never done it before and I shouldn't be I should be count myself lucky that I recorded that moment because any other thing that I do now is going to be a considered thought it's going to be I'm going to put the an analytical head into this instead of the feeling that I had when I read that and mm. the very unusual nature of those verses found their way to the recorder via my response to Michael's music tumble down dick said to king oliver i don't shrink down at the thought of you give the people back their ringlet prince just like you ought to do journey far from here like gulliver to lands at the edge of everywhere that we have still to discover where there's a soul of a jackboot in a broken brace poised above a human face forever and ever I broke my own rules about I, I I write songs music first words first I sometimes like any songwriter will discover go into some sort of other state that's like a trance and when I come out of it I've been working very meticulously at at things that other people would call craft and I went from an idea or a title to a song and I don't remember how I got there uh, or I've had all of those experiences I've watched Bert Bacharach compose music in front of my eyes and him be completely unaware what he had written except that we had a tape recorder rolling at the time hmm. you know so for wow. me to record myself joining words to music was a big surprise after 40 nearly 50 years of writing songs yeah. that there's even a recording of me doing that now I'm not singing I should point out I am reciting but you know guess what Luke the Drifter did that <laughs> The great Hank Williams. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, I love that. So I took the Luke the Drifter approach to these songs. You know. Yeah. Well, you know, even if you're emulating Hank Williams' alter ego, you're emulating Hank Williams. So, not a bad role model. Um, you know, talking about that idea of of the melody and and being strict with melody, but knowing when to break the rules. Uh, the flip side of that is certainly the Juliet Letters, which is an amazing album recorded with the Brodsky Quartet. And that's a situation where the music and the melody kind of bends around the lyrics. So it's a it's a very different um, sort of approach. Little bastard of that brother of mine Trying to trick a poor old woman Till I almost had a 
I'd love to hear how, you know, you look at a, you look at a record like, um, the Juliet letters, you look at a record like North, which topped the billboard jazz albums or Il Sonia, which was a ballet score, which topped the billboard classical music charts. You know, you've, you've worked in virtually every genre and, and every medium that I can think of. In what ways does pursuing these different projects stretch different songwriting muscles that, that keep it fresh and, and keep it exciting for you? Well, those are, you know, all good observations, but the truth of it is my work with the Brodsky Quartet came from my friendship and admiration for them as, as, as you know, as classical music players. I went to hear them play a number of pieces of repertoire, uh, Beethoven and particularly Shostakovich. And, you know, it was getting to know them and realizing that we we didn't just have to talk about uh, classical music structure, but we could talk about uh, football and cake and, and, you know, things that, every, you know, anybody might talk about, where they were very down-to-earth fellows and, 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 and ladies. And they, you know, I just... We, we wanted to find a way that we could collaborate both in words and music because I, I didn't want to write lyrics that sounded like songs that I would have recorded with the Attractions or some other group. I wanted to, um, I just wanted to uh, have this experience of writing music that, again, like Michael Lennett's uh, composition, didn't have a very obvious verse-chorus structure sometimes was more like somebody speaking because all of the we decided all the forms of the songs would be letters so it made perfect sense for them to be in that the, the music to follow the rhythm or the emotion or the intensity hmm. and it it meant that by the time i came out of that process i had an awareness of of a song structure that i never would have written i never would have written london's brilliant parade that was on um Brutal Youth, the next album that I made, uh, if I had not written the Juliet Letters with the with the members of the Brodsky Quartet, I mean, we we each of us wrote a, different proportions of music. I wrote a lot of the words, but they they also had input into the words. Uh, Michael Thomas, the, the then leader, first violinist, he was the other main composer, but everybody wrote music for that for that piece. And it probably wasn't conceived as a record so much as a piece of music for performance, which was later recorded. And more amazingly, has been recorded several other times since by other people. There right. are, to my knowledge, five recordings. Five, I think there are five, maybe six recordings of the Judeo Letters. There's a one that's just just been nominated for a Latin Grammy, which is I've never been <laughs> nominated for a Latin Grammy, so I'm sort right. of, you know, I don't pay much attention to award shows, but that's pretty great, and yeah. it's also wonderful that somebody, you know, translated the whole of the Judah letters into into Polish, and rearranged it for this very very wonderful sounding cabaret band. So the music and the humanity in those songs move somebody else to want to perform it with piano rendition. It's obviously good repertoire for for quartet and different types of vocalists. It's been adapted as a, a drama with music. It's been adapted as a ballet. As you mentioned, I wrote Il Sonio, which was 
music for a, a dance adaptation of Shakespeare in which no Shakespeare was spoken. So that's a big responsibility. You've got to try right. and tell the tale in action and music, taking away the main thing for which Shakespeare is famous, words, you know. Um, <laughs> but all of these experiences leave you somewhere else. And when I came to a moment of wanting to discard any ironic, any, any um, supposed artifice of wordplay and these things that, that were associated with a very simplistic reductive notion of what I could do or did do as a songwriter by 2002 I wrote North you know which was exclusively at the piano Not it was the first uh, record I, I wrote entirely at the piano for my own performance See how the elements Eyes in blue, skies in gray. Inevitably, the, the 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 tempos were of the contemplative, nocturnal mood of most of those lyrics. Yeah. It wasn't a record that everybody loved because they those people that associate me with uh, rock and roll records couldn't find anything in it for themselves. That's fine. Somebody else, right. by, by the way, that's the first record that they responded to, just as the Juliet Letters or Painted from Memory are those entry points for people who maybe don't really like Pump It Up. You know, they, that, doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't really do it for them. I think the thing that I've come to and what you hear on Hey Clockface is that you can have a love of all of the music. It doesn't weaken your ability or your commitment to do a song like No Flag. You can have both. You can yeah. have Hetty O'Hara Confidential or Newspaper Pain, and you can have I Do. Our eyes will see better than watching the river flow. You may say, I don't know, but I do. You can have them all on the same record. I mean, it takes some pacing, takes a, a, a producer, mixer of the skill of Sebastian Kreese to give the, the weight and balance and not undermine your own work by trying to convert one thing into the other, rather to yeah, heighten right. the, you know, the, the, the intense feeling of a, of a committed ballad. 
I, I, the same thing applied when I played in Nashville when I went back and recorded the two records I recorded at the end of the 2009-10 period there, through there were Secret Profane, Sugarcane and National Ransom yeah, great records. The first one, which was cut in only it was cut in only three days. Some of the songs in that session came from an opera I wrote about Hans Christian Andersen, huh, and I remember, wow. you know, I adapted them. I adapted them because the my story about Andersen was about his rivalry for the affections of Jenny Lind, the Swedish opera singer, who became a great concert attraction in the 1850s. Uh, promoted by P.T. Barnum. So it gave me a reason to write about Barnum, to write about the period of the Civil War, uh, leading up to the Civil War, uh, and things that were in the air then from the point of view of these three historical figures. Now, cutting those songs with people of the, of the quality of musician of Jerry Douglas and Stuart Duncan and Dennis Crouch and Jeff Taylor... Uh, and Mike Compton was really remarkable because there's really not a lot of difference between that and working with the with the Brodsky Quartet. Huh. You know, you're reaching agreements that are not motivated by a kick drum, bass bass drum. You know, you the the, the bass drum is Dennis Crouch and the backbeat is 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 Compton. You know, right. the mandolin and you're dry, you've got drive. Compton said to me one time, he said, "This is more harmony than I've played in my entire career." Because inevitably, these songs have been transposed from the piano to the mandolin and the guitar and the fiddle and the, and the dobro. Sure. But we made music out of those songs like Red Cotton and these songs that were very intense, deeply felt song about the part my, my family town, hometown, like Liverpool, has in the infernal trade, you know, of, of slavery. Right. I mean, that's a song I wanted to write I had to find two pretexts for writing it. The first was an opera about Hans Christian Andersen. The second was recording a record that many people said was a bluegrass record. This slave ship blessing slipped from Liverpool Over the waves the Royal Navy rules To go and plunder the kingdom I've We're just playing music as well. The point I'm making is, just like my session in Paris, we're just playing music. Stop calling it a name other than good or for you or for, for another person. That's all right. I'm asking. Just yeah. listen to yeah. what it is, not what it isn't. And <laughs> you decide whether it, it works for you. It works for me. I, at a certain point, you have to go, this is the way it is, fellas. You know, this is what it is. Yeah. And... Uh, that's why I said working in France uh, for those two days was very refreshing in the same way as it was when I went to Nashville. Nobody asked for my passport in going in the studio. All we were trying to do was make the most vivid record of those songs. That's all. You know? Yeah. And yeah. That's it. Well, Hey Clock Face, like so many of your albums, is certainly a vivid record of your recent songs. And we love that you're not easy to categorize because it reflects how in love you are with the full range of musical expression. And we certainly resonate with that sentiment and definitely appreciate you taking the time to speak with us today. Listen, thank you for your questions. Absolutely. Uh, we really enjoyed this. Thank you. Bye for now. 
Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting our potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And if you'd like, please follow us on Facebook and Twitter by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.